production. This is part two of my conversation with Gary Zukov, one of the world's greatest spiritual teachers and New York Times bestselling authors. In episode one, we spoke about looking through the lens of gratitude and choosing love over fear. When fear ceases to scare you, it can't stay. As you learn to experience your emotions fully as you can, never to repress or suppress or to deny an emotion, to feel the full impact of its pain in your body. Then you know what it is you're challenging, how painful it is, how magnetically attractive it is. And then is when you can make the choice while you're feeling that to act from the healthiest part of your personality that you can imagine. At that moment, you're creating authentic power. In this episode, we speak about the power of intention, the meaning of hope, and the universal law of cause and effect. The universal law of cause and effect, or karma, is the universal, impersonal teacher of responsibility. Eventually, you begin to connect the dots between your choices of intentions and your experiences. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. The wisdom and teachings in Gary Zukov's book, Seed of the Soul, profoundly changed my life forever. His newest book, Universal Human, is equally as remarkable. This is a powerful conversation that will leave you feeling uplifted, inspired and full of love. Before you listen to part two of my conversation with Gary Zukov, it's important you listen to part one, because in this conversation, we go even deeper into Gary's powerful teachings. My hope is that Gary's words allow you to gain a deeper understanding of what lies beyond the veil of what we can see and connects you with a greater sense of truth that we all hold within us. You spoke before about death, about your grandma dying many years ago, and Obviously, when people have death, it can be so frightening and just there's that horrible time of grieving which can last sometimes forever for the rest of their life. How does one move into love at a time like that when they are, they are so filled with grief from losing someone that was so close to them? Well, when someone says to me, uh, oh, my, my mother just died or my child died, yeah. I still feel a frightened part of my personality wants to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, my nephew died too, you know, and, and this is what happened to me. But that doesn't help. That doesn't do anything. That's one frightened part of a personality addressing another frightened part of a personality. So I say, well, I'm celebrating your child's life too. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine who, whose uh, soul did go home, which is a more accurate way of uh, looking at the fact yeah. that his personality died, uh, was a great a great guru. He wasn't a guru to me. I, I just loved it, loved the man. And uh, his name was Ram Das. Oh, I love Ram Das too. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you'd met him, you'd know why. He just had this smile. And uh, he brought the idea and the experience of loving awareness into meditation. Yeah. And uh, he told uh, a large audience once, I was in it, 
He said, I was talking to a channeled entity and I asked the entity, uh, what about death? Will you tell me about that? And the entity said, it's completely safe. <laughs> so as you begin to look at your life and the lives of others from the impersonal perspective of your soul, yes. everything shifts. The pursuit of external power that's still so attractive only produces violence and destruction. It used to be our good medicine, now it's toxic. Um, um, the goals that you used to pursue are less interesting. Yes. And new goals appear, just as one appeared to you, and you're now on the path to explore that goal. It's true. A big thing that you talk about and something that you introduce me to is intention. And you speak about it in your book, that conscious intention is the most important thing in creating authentic power. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, yes. Intention is primary. Intention is in everything is primary. And it's the intention of love or the intention of fear. Yeah. What most people call an intention is, I, I would say, is an out-tension. For example, they want, to, uh, uh, they want to make more money. They, uh, um, they want to learn, they, they want to go skiing. They want to visit Australia. Or since you're in Australia, they want to visit um, the North Pole or where, wherever it is that yes. they're really excited to go. And they say, that's my intention. But it's not really. Why are you doing that? Why do you want those things? If it's to impress people, if it's to give yourself a better self-image, one of us as an adventurer or an interesting person, that's an intention of fear. If you're doing it because it satisfies something deep in you, because that's where your gift lies. Maybe you need to study a species of, of seal that only exists at one of the poles. I'm making this part up. I don't yeah, know yeah. if seals exist at both poles or not. But I think you understand me. The real intention is love or fear. Yeah. And if you create to create authentic power in your life, you need to recognize the difference between them. The Earth School, that's the learning environment I was telling you about. It's a domain of time and space and matter and duality. Mm. Everything in it has an opposite. Night, day, good, bad, up, down, love, fear. Love, fear. The opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. And these are the only choices of intention that you have in the Earth School at the bedrock can't get any deeper level. Mm. That's why it's so important to know. And it's so important to know because when you act with an intention of fear, you create destructively and painfully. And when you act with, a, with an intention of love, you create constructively and blissfully. In other words, you begin to create your life consciously you develop that ability. It changed my life when I learned that information. I remember thinking to myself, I wasn't really doing things thinking about an intention or maybe there was a loose intention. But as soon as, as I put that loving intention into everything I did, even sending an email and having a conversation with someone, just everything in life, you realise how much more meaningful it is and how your actions completely change as well. Yes, 
That's right. It just, yeah, intention shapes everything. You say all roads lead to awareness and love, although some are more direct and joyful and some are longer and more difficult. Can you explain that to us? When you make a choice, it's as though you walk through a doorway. It's not the only doorway you can walk through. There are other doorways you can walk through. But this is the one that you've chosen. So you walk through that doorway. And what happens? You see more doorways, more choices, and the same every time you walk through one. You might say the optimal choice is the choice to grow spiritually, to create authentic power. But it doesn't matter which door you go through, there's learning. Nothing happens in the earth school that does not support your spiritual development. Yes. That's what I mean. You can look at what your heart is telling you about what I'm saying, and if it resonates, if it feels like something that's more than another uh, technique or a new age course on a smorgasbord, experiment with it. Because as people create authentic power, those that really do, and it takes a lot of courage and commitment, they reach a place where they realize, ah, this is not a technique. This is my life. Yeah. This is my life I'm experimenting with. This is my life I'm changing. And that changes everything for them. And it is always your life that you're changing. But most people look at their lives as an experience. I'm suggesting you begin to look at it as an experiment. And start experimenting with becoming aware of your intentions. And of course, uh, I've already suggested a little bit about how you can distinguish love from fear. You look inside your body at the physical sensations mm. you feel in the chakra areas. Uh, we would call, I would call them energy processing centers. Yeah. And if you're an active, a, a frightened part of, if fear is active in you, you'll feel pain in one or more of those, your chest area, your throat, your forehead, your solar plexus. And if love is active, you'll feel uh, blissful, good feeling physical sensations. So then you know. Fear is active in you. Now the next question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to act on it? Oh, it's so powerfully magnetic. It's going to tell him off. Yeah, tell him what you think. It's okay. He deserves it. He deserves everybody to tell him. Ship him up right now. Right now. Drive it in. Well, I know those feelings. Everybody does. They're frightened parts of personalities that are vengeful, righteous, superior, or inferior and want to scream out because they're a victim. Yes. But while you feel those, to challenge them, to deliberately make a choice to move beyond the control of that part of your personality right now. You can imagine yourself on a beach and you draw a line in the sand with your toe and that part of your personality that's screaming for expression, demanding expression, that's righteous and rageful or withdrawing and whimpering, whatever it is in you that's controlling you that you know is not constructive, you say to it, I'm not being controlled by you 
Not now. Yeah. Not now. Gary, when you're in a situation where you might be standing up for yourself and maybe that's not something that you normally do, is that coming from love even when you have to be stronger in a situation so someone doesn't walk all over you? The answer to your question depends on how you do it. Yes. On the intention that you're holding while you do it. Mm. Uh, Creating authentic power doesn't mean to be a doormat for life. Yes. It means to be aware, responsible, and an authority in your own life. To recognize when you're acting from fear. When you see somebody abusing another, they're acting in fear. When you see somebody trying to abuse you, they're acting in fear. And the more you know about fear, the more you realize, unmistakably, it's painful. Yeah. It's so painful. So when someone is abusing another or trying to abuse you, you know they're in pain. Now the question is, what can you do about it? That's the question that Gandhi had to ask himself a lot. And Martin Luther King had to ask himself a lot. At Christ, I don't know what happened in his mind and in his heart, but I know uh, that he had moments of indecision too. When he got angry at the moneylenders and smashed things to pieces, what are you doing here? Didn't you know where you are? That's not love. Unless, unless there was something in his heart that knew that that experience would give to some people around him an insight that they didn't have before. Then it wouldn't have been from fear. Same with you. It's, it's, this is what everyone has to answer, that question. What, it, what, what do you do uh, when someone abuses you or wants to abuse you because of your color, your gender? your nationality, the way you speak, the way you don't speak. Are you going to react with fear or respond with love? And what would that look like? Yeah. That's where intuition can help you. Yeah. But we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> that, is, that is beautiful. Gary, you introduced me to the law of cause and effect in Seed of the Soul, and we, you talk about it a lot in your new book, Can you explain, you have the best explanation out of anyone I've ever heard talk about the law of cause and effect and how it affects everything in our life. Yes. The law of cause and effect. Look at it as a message delivery system. Whenever you send a message out into the world, imagine that written on the envelope are the words, return to sender. Now, what is the message that you're sending? What is in the envelope? What is in the envelope is an experience that an intention and an action, a deed or words of yours, have created in another person. So, for example, let's use sort of a television cliched example. You're you're betrayed. You're stood up at the aisle. That person who betrayed you has sent a message into the universe and it's coming home. Yeah. It's just a matter of when. And when it comes home, what that person will experience is exactly what that person sent. And that message could have been sent last month or last year or 400 years ago. But when you receive it, 
the package that it comes in may look different. In other words, you may be stood up by someone at your wedding, but not necessarily, not even that frequently. You may be betrayed by a platoon leader in combat. Yeah. Um, you may be betrayed by a friend who embezzles from you. But whatever the experience is that you caused in another, you will experience. The universal law of cause and effect, or karma, is the universal, impersonal teacher of responsibility. Eventually, you begin to connect the dots between your choices of intentions and your experiences. And when you do, you'll come to a remarkable conclusion that will rock your world. All of your experiences are karmic necessities. Oh, what happened to blaming people for what you feel? What, happened, what happens to thanking people for what I feel? No, it's simpler than that. I created what I feel. Yeah. And I always will. So why not start creating <laughs> constructive consequences that feel good? Yes, absolutely. It's really as simple as that. That's the law of cause and effect. Um, the law of cause and effect is impersonal, unfailing, never fails to deliver a message. Never, ever, ever. Um, it doesn't read your messages. It doesn't discuss your messages. It doesn't evaluate your messages. It delivers them. Yeah. I think you look at the world in a completely different way when you know that. You live your life so differently when you realize that as well. Yes, yes. That's the huge transformation of consciousness that's happening now. Yeah. From five-sensory to multi-sensory, from external power to authentic power. From trying to change the world by changing the world to try to changing the world by changing yourself. Yes. It's a, everything is different. Everything is different. By the way, you can tell if this is really happening or not by looking around you. First of all, look in you. That's the first place you can tell where this change is happening. But everything that you see in the world that we inherited from five sensory humanity is built on external power, like we said at the beginning of, yes. of our talk, including our social structures, such as education, health, business, jurisprudence, even the military. And they are all disintegrating now. They're all collapsing. And they don't have any salvage value mm. because they're not broken. They're obsolete. They were built for and by a five-century species pursuing external power. Yeah. We are a multi-sensory species growing spiritually by creating authentic power. Mm. The old consciousness and five-sensory humans are leaving now. They're dying. I mean the consciousness. Yes. And so are their social structures are disintegrating. And the new multi-sensory human is emerging. And so 
are its social structures. Mm. So that's in Universal Human too. I love that discussion. It's I love beautiful. One of the things I love about writing books is I can really sit down with someone who's interested for hour after hour. Yes. And they only stay as long as they're interested. Well, that's it, exactly. <laughs> With this book, there is a lot to be interested in. You finish Universal Human talking about hope and you say hope is necessary because without hope, there is no intention to grow. Hope is the first appearance of light in the sky after a night of darkness. Can you talk to us about hope? You know, hope... Hope is something that is an experience of fear. Mm. If you hope, if you hope for wisdom, if you hope for compassion, it's because you don't have hope. I mean, you don't have wisdom and you don't have compassion. You have hope for wisdom and compassion. When you become compassionate and wise, hope disappears. Hope is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's an energy. It's an amazing energy, it's, it's at the heart of the universe. Not that the universe is hopeful, that's a projection of our feelings. When you look under a microscope and you see a single-celled organism coupling with another single-celled organism to make a more complex organism, that's hope. It's a reaching out, it's a combining. When five-century humans pursued external power. They did it with the hope that that was going to make their lives better, that they would live longer by manipulating and controlling their environment from very primitive circumstances such as being able to see the connection between a burning branch on a tree, on a lightning-struck tree and bringing it into a cold cave to warm it. That's the pursuit of external power. And now it's grown and grown into what it is now. And it's, it's, its run is over. It's a dying consciousness. And a new consciousness is being born. And we are standing with one foot in one and the other foot in the other. That's what makes this brief period of time more remarkable, more exciting than any in the history of humankind. That's what I was talking about at the beginning of our talk. And at each moment, you're deciding which side of the line are you going to step onto. On one side of the line is cruelty, suffering, manipulation, control, carnage, despair, on the other side of the line is a new dawn, is new depth of meaning, new perception, new access to what is most meaningful and evident in your life from the impersonal perspective of your soul. And that is where we are now. 
Every moment is a choice, a choice of intention, and you make it every moment. If you don't make it consciously, you make it unconsciously. In other words, if you're not aware of what your intention is, you're not, you're not conscious of it. So powerful and so meaningful and life-changing. My life has changed ever since I knew that. And your world can be so glorious once you do know that as well. Gary, what is the most mystical experience you have ever had? <laughs> it never ends. It never ends. Albert Einstein put it in one sentence. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is its comprehensibility. He lived with the mystery. But the mystery is not something that obscures us. Um, from, the perspective, from the perspective of the intellect, the mystery is that which is always beyond reach. Oh, there was a French mathematician who gave this analogy. He said, knowledge is like a sphere. And the sphere of knowledge is ever-expanding. And the more it expands, the more surface area it has. And therefore, the more it comes into contact with the unknown. That's how the intellect looks at the mystery. We are moving in a direction toward more fullness. Ignorance to a five-sensory person is ignorance of facts. And there's too many facts in the world to ever be aware of or know about all of them. Ignorance to a multi-sensory person is lack of awareness of intention. And when, as you develop authentic power, let me put it this way. We can understand this thing much better as we become multi-sensory. Universal human is another step in human evolution beyond multi-sensory. And it's not the end of evolution, but it is the end of human evolution. And beyond the boundaries of human lie other domains of experience and consciousness and life. And the experience of life as life. Five sensory humans identify themselves with their personality. Multi-sensory humans identify themselves with their soul. Universal humans identify with life. Beyond universal human is experience as life. What would that be? I can't tell you. I could only tell you at most. I, couldn't, I can't tell you at all. But I do know this, that there is no single perception that can encompass the universe. And the points of possible perception are without number. Mm. What is your, and this is not from a religious perspective, what is your favorite prayer? Prayer is an interesting subject because it's very different for five-sensory humans than it is for multi-sensory humans. This is a multi-sensory prayer. <laughs> well, you've got to, let's contrast them. A five-sensory prayer, a five-sensory human generally looks at divine intelligence or whatever his or her perception of divinity is as um, all-powerful, the boss in the most crude sense of the word, and the most beneficent 
in the best sense of the word. But what five sensory humans do is they project their own understanding of power onto their images of divinity. And when their understanding of power is external, the ability to manipulate and control, they fear their divinity. They don't want to mess with it. It's too big. It's too powerful. You can't even begin to go up against it. That's their own understanding of power projected onto the collective screen of consciousness. If a five sense, if a five sensory human actually lived a life of unending patience, of love beyond expression, of complete commitment to supporting you in every way in growing spiritually. That's what that human would project onto its divinity. So, now we come back to prayer. A five-sensory human talks to the boss, gets down on his knees, or however he prays, and says, please, please, Please make the world this way. He pleads. He enters his pleas, and those pleas are his prayers or her prayers. Now, a multisensory human looks at divinity. When a multisensory human prays, a multisensory human does so with the understanding that there is an intelligence that is listening to what it's saying, and with it is co creating the most optimal circumstances within, in this case, the domain of the earth school for his or her spiritual growth. So a multisensory human shares, shares her aspirations, shares her joys, shares her fears, shares her struggles, shares what she wants to do. In other words, a multi-sensory human co-creates. So, a multi-sensory human who sees or be, is beginning to see from the impersonal perspective of the soul will not say, oh, Lord, please, please let my mother just live another two years. Please let my daughter live or my son. Please let him walk again. Let him recover from this terrible accident. It's not for the son or the mother or the daughter that they are praying. It's for themselves. It's for relief or release from this terrible agony of grief, of loss, the pain of needing and must-having and not sure you're going to get and then not getting. That's what the prayer is really for. So a multi-sensory personality who sees from the perception, from the perspective of his soul knows that death is not the ultimate catastrophe. It's a, it's a moment in which, in which the soul decides to return to non-physical reality. A moment that it chooses. So it doesn't pray to anybody to change that. The soul goes when it chooses. 
And yet, there is value, great value in prayer from love. You might say that it doesn't change the person you're praying for, if that's what you're doing, but in a way, it changes the world through which she walks. Love <laughs> always is, we run out of words. I was going to say shareable. How can you share something that's everywhere? How can you share something that everything is made of? What does the word mean at that point? But when you realize that you're made of that too, you don't have to share it. You are it. And it's from that perspective that you converse or share with your understanding or experience of divinity. What to do next? How to create authentic power? How to support people in creating authentic power? What to do about systemic racism? What to do about the American caste system or the caste system in India? What to do about the pandemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of people daily? If we added the global, the macabre global, and I won't say macabre because that's a judgment. This is what's happening. Question is, what can we do about it? Well, um, I look at the um, coronavirus uh, from as personal, impersonal perspective as I can, which means this. I know that there is no experience in the Earth School that is without value. And that includes even the coronavirus and the pandemic. And already, uh, in, my, in, in my experience, um, the pandemic is not going to leave quickly. It's going to be, it's not going to be forgotten quickly. It is a turning point in human behavior and evolution and will become seen as that. And already we're beginning to see some things, aren't we? For example, people who are kept separate can't hug, they can't go out and visit, they can't have meals together. And yet they're also beginning to realize how important people are to them really important, not because of what they can do or say or make them feel, but just because they are. And they can't satisfy that by going out. So it arises inside to be experienced and recognized and integrated. Um, to avoid the coronavirus requires separation, physical separation, it requires wearing masks. That's symbolic for not showing yourself. In other words, the requirements for, the limit, for limiting the spread of the coronavirus are identical in behavior with fear, isolation, separation, protecting yourself with a mask, not showing yourself. But when those same behaviors are taken with love, Everything changes. When you keep six feet away from somebody because you don't want to get the virus, that's not social distance, that's selfish distance. When you wear a mask, not because you're frightened of getting the virus, that's all right if you don't want to get the virus, but you can also wear the mask to keep other people from getting the virus because you don't know if you're carrying it and you're asymptomatic. If you are 
in this isolation that we've created, self-imposed, you might say, or given to us as a gift, so many of the activities that made up our lives that were mindless, habitual and robotic, going to work, coming home from work, cooking dinner, going shopping, taking the kids on a play date, conversations about cars, about the market, about style, about sports. All of that's gone. The virus has eliminated much of it and shattered much of it. So, now we have a vaccine, several of them. If, if the vaccine could allow us to return to life as normal, would you want to do that? Do you really want to go back to your life the way it was? But what's causing the coronavirus is not a variation of SARS. It is fear. And there's no vaccine for fear. So how will you, what will you do as you're confronted with this? And it's real. It's real. When we first got back to where we live after our last visit outward, we talked to a friend that we'd met, and that friend had COVID and had spent five days in the ICU in New York City in Manhattan. And we would read to her at night. And she barely had enough strength to hold up her phone so we could FaceTime. And she told us several times, I thought I was going to die today. And we've heard that before. That's how painful it is to have this. And she was in her 40s, relatively young compared to somebody in their 60s or 70s or 80s that might require intubation, a ventilator. And when we talked, when I read about people who have been on ventilators, they said, it's like in heaven. It's like having scissors in my lungs. So this is real. And it's not as lethal as the bubonic plague or smallpox, except to people who die from it. But most people remain uninfected. So it's a huge event. It's as big as a species extinction. It's as big as an ice age. It's affecting the entire human species at one time and everybody is affected by it, but not with the form and ferocity that could endanger the existence of the human species itself. All of that is the miracle. All of that is the miracle. What can you learn from your life in the Earth School. Now, the pandemic is a part of your life in the Earth School in a big way. What can you learn about your experiences from that? About reacting in fear or responding with love? And what does that mean? Yeah. What do you do when you feel that everyone should wear a mask out of concern for others and people don't because they don't feel that? Are you going to react with fear or respond with love? And what does that look like? And these are important questions, and there's no answers for them except the ones that you find in your own heart. That's so true. Very, very wise words, Gary. Gary, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? Enjoy yourself. <laughs> the building block of life. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. All is perfect. That's good advice.
Gary, our last question. What is a life of greatness to you? Greatness from a five-sensory perspective usually involves the largest number of people. But it's the opposite from a multi-sensory perspective. It is the decision that one person makes in her heart not to close down when she's angry. It's the decision that someone makes in a moment of tenderness to remain in tenderness. In other words, to move into love. That's what changes the world. So that is a life of greatness to me. Mother Teresa said something so lovely. She said, we cannot do great things, but we can do small things with great love. And your gift may be like Martin Luther King's or Gandhi's or Jesus to confront the fear in the world and show another way. Show it, not preach it, show it. You can preach it too, but if you preach it and you don't show it, that doesn't take you very far or anyone else. So, who do we say is great? The Roman legions, unstoppable, flooded Palestine, and it was only a tiny part of the Roman legions. And this individual, Jesus from Nazareth, drew too much attention, and he was brutally murdered, executed, murdered by an occupying army. And today, and he died. Now, today, 2,000 or so years later, the Roman legions are gone. Everyone from that time is gone. But there's one person we remember. I'm not Christian, but I remember him. He doesn't belong to Christianity. It belongs to the world. So you ask me, what is the life of greatness? Look at Martin Luther King Jr. There are so many people who suffered indignity and who challenged it with a weapon or challenged it by, didn't challenge it, just withdrew. Martin didn't either. In my opinion, he lived a life of greatness, but it wasn't the scope of what he did. The scope of what he did came from what he did inside himself. Same with Gandhi. So I love the I love the title of your podcast. It is always one that calls multisensory humans back to earth. So what is greatness? Is it being impressive to other people? Or is it living in love, in gratitude? in appreciation, in caring, and in awe of the universe? Is it feeling what I'm feeling and making the healthiest choices I can make? That's a life of greatness, in my opinion. And that's the creation of authentic power. Gary Zukov, you are one of the most unbelievable, amazing humans I have ever met. Your work is is just been such a phenomenal thing for so many millions of people. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the conversation today. You are truly incredible. Oh, you are welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for your invitation to me. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.